You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Sarah J. Zimmerman, an Associate Professor of History at Western Washington University and is the Vice President of the French Colonial Historical Society. Her research focuses on women and gender in West Africa, French Empire, and the Atlantic world. Her current research attends to the gendered production of history and memory of Goy Island, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Senegal. She has published articles in the International Journal of African Historical Studies and L'Etat Moderne. In this conversation, we discuss her first monograph, Militarizing Marriage, West African Soldiers, Conjugal Traditions in Modern French Empire, which was published in 2020 by Ohio University Press. Our conversation here focuses on the key concepts and arguments in the book where she historicizes militarization, marriage, and colonialism by focusing on tirailleurs senegalais, households in West Africa and across the French Empire. Okay, so we're here today with Sarah. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, Spring is here, and we're going to start off spring with military history. (laughs) So we're here to discuss your book, um, Militarizing Marriage. Mm -hmm. And um, so before we get started, as we usually do on this podcast, um, can you narrate us through the origins of the project and... um, how you stuck to this project. And, you know, as John usually goes on, you know, there's like an emotional toll and the self-esteem sure. <laughs> you know, um, like sure. journey that goes with writing a book. So, um, yeah. So just kind of walk us through how you got started on this. Sure. So um, I will say that the kernel of the project comes from uh, a kind of second reading of Franz Fanon's Damne de la Terre, or The Wretched of the Earth, uh, which I was reading in a graduate course um, uh, back in the early 2000s. And, you know, at the end of Wretched of the Earth, uh, Franz Fanon includes, includes some case studies. And in one of those case studies, he mentions that the Senegalais, which I just did in quotation marks, but the Senegalais um, were in the torture chambers um, in Algeria, right, during the Algerian war. Um, And when I read that, I was kind of like, why were Senegalese in Algeria? And I kind of pulled at that thread and pulled at that thread, and I became interested in kind of thinking through trans-Saharan relations during the colonial period, um, because you you know effectively have a kind of uh, reduction of trans-Saharan trade due to colonialism. But I was kind of interested in thinking through kind of trans-Saharan relations, racial difference, and religious similarities, right, among these populations. Um, and I was very fortunate to receive funding from my graduate institution as well as a Fulbright Hayes. 
Um, and so when I began uh, part of my research, you know, and I began interviewing veterans in Senegal, um, they weren't really interested or didn't have memories of kind of contact with or, or kind of racialized contact with um, civilians in North Africa when they served in Algeria or when they were stationed in uh, Morocco. Um, but they did have some things to say about pensions because the um, crystallization and decrystallization of pensions was uh, a kind of hot international topic in the mid 2000s. And, you know, in addition to talking about issues around pensions, they also like kind of linked that to um, being able to support their families. Right. And so I became interested in that question of, well, how do families and our families centered in these kinds of questions of militarization? And these veterans also spoke um, anecdotally with kind of excitement about um, their interactions with women while serving abroad. Um, and from there, I began to think about and kind of began to understand the critical role of family making um, within the institution of the Tiraru Senegali, right? Like, you know, it wasn't just a military institution. It was also an employment path. Um, and <clears throat> I, you know, went back into the archives to ask more questions of the archives after speaking with veterans and began looking specifically for women. And I saw in the historiography that, you know, Greg Mann's Native Sons, which came out in, I think, 2006, did deal with some of these questions, but they weren't central to his work. And then a woman named Camille Dupac um, did a master's thesis in France kind of on some of these questions. But no one had really kind of centered women within these kinds of these questions of militarization and empire making. Um, which became really kind of critical to the way that I was seeing this story. And I wasn't able to fully kind of like accomplish this in the dissertation. Um, and so just for those out there who are writing dissertations, sometimes you figure out what you wanted to write after you finished your dissertation. <laughs> and so, you know, um, contrary to the advice of some sage mentors, instead of publishing the dissertation, I decided to conduct quite a lot of more research and publish the book that I wanted to publish. And in some ways I was fortunate because one, I got a tenure track job, but two, the tenure track job that I got was not at an R1 institution. So I had a longer clock to get the book out. And actually my institution, though it is not an R1, which is Western Washington University, who I should say supported me quite a lot to take summers and go and conduct more research, um, both in Senegal and France. And, you know, I came to see that, like, via conjugal traditions, um, we can see how women were integral to the military institution of the Terrayur Senegale, um, which, as you, you know from reading the book, like, I see as a kind of key institution to empire making. Right. Um, and then the final thing that I will say in terms of, like, why this project kind of became significant to me on a personal level. Um, my grandmother was a British war bride. Um, she relocated from England to the United States in 1946. Um, and, you know, 
while she passed before um, I really kind of honed in on this project, there was something that like about kind of thinking about her life that also pushed me to ask questions within the project um, in terms of kind of moving very long distances and how that kind of situates people within kind of new social networks um, and could, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, could essentially kind of sever relations to, you know, their lineages and their kin. Um, but yeah. I really like how you, um, you know, it's um, it's interesting about, you know, you find out what you want to write after you wrote about it. <laughs> sure. And it's also you really bring back this focus on women in this, you know, in the military history, which is I think that's what drew me to the book, because I was like, I, what, I've never put the two together. You know, I was like, how does this, you know, play a role in the larger scheme of the French Empire? Um, we always talk about the men. We talk about, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we never get this description of um, the, the, the integral part that they that women played in the building of these empires mm -hmm. and to that you know i mean in your introduction you really just pulled me in because you started to talk about um Vuti chat and um you really lay out this like di like historiography of her which was just mm -hmm. um you know where she started and where she ended um and her just how her lineage just continued from one part of the world and then ended up in Senegal. But can you like tell us more about, you know, her and um, what your book has to say about the migration of female colonial subjects across the empire? Yes. Um, so unfortunately, I only conducted one interview with Bouti Chat. Um, um, and she like, so I, I'll, I'll back up a little bit to say that um, my entree into the Vietnamese or kind of like Afro-Vietnamese community um, in Dakar primarily occurred because of one very special person, um, uh, Sophie Jan, um, who, you know, was born to two Senegalese people in Vietnam um, during the French Indo-Chinese War and who, you know, many years later, um, is something of a uh, kind of, I would say, an important member of the Afro-Vietnamese population in Dakar. They've created a civic association. Um, I did participate in Tet when I was last in Senegal in February of 2020. Um, and, you know, when I met her, her father was a veteran and he's also the former mayor of Gore. <laughs> um, but her, her father had, had served in um, Vietnam. And there was um, a kind of, I would say, a kind of importance about kind of commemorating that experience by, ma by maintaining this kind of community within Dakar. And when I met them both, she kind of latched onto me and was like, you must meet these various Vietnamese families, right? And she would come and pick me up from my apartment in Liberty Sank and would drive me around <laughs> to these various families and, and members of this community um, so that I could kind of incorporate this story into the broader narrative um, of the book. And 
um, Booty Chat is in some ways um, unique within that community because many members of that community kind of came as family units or came as adopt like Afro-Vietnamese adoptees. Um, whereas Vuti Chat in many regards was an orphan um, who then um, became a refugee of sorts who was adopted by a Tiaio Senegalais. Then she was raised by his family in Kaolak and then later became his wife. Um, and there was a disparity in their ages and, and she was widowed um, by the time I spoke to her in the mid 2000s. And I didn't pry. Um, I didn't wanna ask her too many questions about her relationship with her in-laws um, and those kinds of things. But it seems as though she um, had kind of, at least when she spoke to me, right? Um, you know, she cast her own past as one of romance, right? And one of kind of gratefulness and thankfulness um, and really, um, you know, emphasized a kind of bond between herself and her deceased partner. Um, and it was, it was actually, you know, quite impressive to kind of, uh, think about how she cast her own narrative, you know, within empire, because she had recast the entire thing as decisions that were made about love, right. In the tragedy of the French Indochinese war, um, which certainly varied from other kinds of stories and narratives that I read in the archives and heard from um, other um, Afro-Vietnamese families, right? Um, and I will say this, that like, you know, the kind of one-time kind of several-year wave of Vietnamese women, Afro-Vietnamese children that relocated to West Africa as well as North Africa, um, for those who partnered with North African troops stationed in um, what is now Vietnam. Um, but they were rather unique to the story itself um, because they were refugees that were leaving after a very nasty conflict. Um, and they were essentially leaving a place that would never be the same because it was decolonizing. Um, and so in some ways, these Afro-Vietnamese families are not, are kind of evidence of the failures of colonization in many regards, um, but didn't as much participate in the expansion, maintenance and defense of empire that earlier kind of women, wives and family participated in with the institution of the Tiraire of Senegalais. Um, but to answer that second question, you know, what, uh, does my book have to say about the migration of female subjects across empire? This is actually something I've thought a lot more about since the book was published. Um, and I, I like, I think that there are a couple of different ways that we can kind of contextualize this. And I'm very interested, certainly in the labor question, um, because I think that we often, because of the nature of the sources um, and because of the nature of colonial patriarchy, we tend to think of colonization as, the work of men, right? And 
I think that there have been a range of scholars who have been striving to show how the work of women perhaps unintentionally, right, but was part and parcel of empire's work. And I think in this instance, we can see how women, through coercion, potentially voluntarily because they want to maintain the integrity of their families, are participating in these kinds of projects that militarize and colonize various parts of French empire, other places on the African continent, as well as um, other parts of French empire. And I've been thinking about this in particular, there's a, there's a story in the chapter that deals with kind of the interwar period of Fatamata Bambara, um, who is a woman who, you know, travels with the Tirailleurs Senegalais to Madagascar in the 1890s to participate in the conquest of that island. And in the 1920s, after her husband is deceased, she is likely in her 60s, she wants to go home, right? It's like she's performed a kind of labor for empire. She has sustained her livelihood in this space, even after her partner has passed. And now she wants to kind of reintegrate with children that she left behind 30 years previously. And there's this really kind of unfortunate and I see as unjust kind of set of um, kind of colonial prerogatives that deem in the 1920s that she is not worthy of boat fare to return home. Um, because in many ways she's out of context. In the 1920s, she is an anomaly for what has become the norm within militarization and colonization. Um, and her kind of labor that she performed in the 1890s and early 1900s doesn't count as labor anymore and is not kind of recognized by the colonial state. Um, and this is a kind of silencing, right? And a kind of epistemic violence um, in terms of the erasure of who she was and what she did in the 1890s and early 1900s. Um, and so I, I kind of have been struck by that uh, in many regards um, in terms of thinking about this as a labor history. But then another component, and we'll, we'll get into this, I'm sure, is um, in terms of thinking about migration, I just want to emphasize this, oftentimes in colonial histories um, and post-colonial histories, we all too often kind of replicate assumptions that migration was occurring metropole to colony and back, right? Um, and we don't pay enough attention to the kind of precursor to what we now call kind of South-South migration, right? Where we're seeing people move within the colonial world. Um, and I think that, you know, this book tries to do that work in terms of looking at the circulation of women who are sometimes colonial subjects, members of French UN mandate territories, members of French protectorates who are circulating within empire and causing various levels of colonial officials to kind of ask questions and kind of reconfigure ideas about jurisdiction, 
conjugal tradition, inheritance, patriarchy, family. So like you have military officials who are like, well, what is normative for family making in this place? Right. And, and these are not, you know, questions that you would normally think that they're kind of entertaining, but these questions that they're entertaining and the answers that they end up with are very consequential to determining the future of these women and their partners. It's, and I, you know, it's really interesting also how you mentioned like Fatima Tabumba. It's, you know, usually she'll probably just be like a footnote. <laughs> she know? was it, one document. In there the you go. So exactly. <laughs> she'll just be like, you know, like wife of, and you're like, wait a minute, like what, what, what is the labor behind this? Mm-hmm. And um, like, it's a silencing in the archives and it's just, um, it makes you just think of, well, what else are we missing? And, you know, and it's very so true. Much. So much. <laughs> so much. It's, um, it's just, and we, you're very right. We, we always think about, you know, we never question the migration that happens within the empire, you know, within, for example, if we look at the sub-Saharan from Mali to Mauritania to Niger, like all that, we're always thinking, well, you know, who's coming and who's going um, in terms of colonizers. Mm-hmm. But um, when we speak about these women in these empires, I really noticed how you set off the tone in, you know, the first couple of pages by making sure to distinguish this difference between wife and conjugal partner. Mm-hmm. So can you speak to us a little bit more about that? And, um, you know, like these are things that, you know, I guess in the French language, like you said, you have femme, which is woman, but can also mean wife. <laughs> so these are things that, like, when you think of a military history, well, who's considered what? And then that mm-hmm. affects inheritance, and then that affects whether these women are cast aside, and then the children. Um, these are sometimes afterthoughts when it comes mm-hmm. to, um, when we think about military history. What about, so what happens, and what is the difference Right. I actually struggled with this quite a lot because, you know, conjugal partner is certainly something that is within kind of contemporary parlance um, to kind of alter the way that we think about kind of like cis, het, um, uh, I guess, normativity within conjugal relations in the contempt or in, in kind of homemaking um, in our contemporary worlds in very specific places. Right. Um, and so I struggled with kind of using this term in a kind of like different geographical space and a different chronological um, time period. And I kept circling around and circling around and finally kind of landed on it for a variety of reasons of which you've already kind of addressed. One is that femme in French means wife and woman. Um, And in the historical archive, you can't always like figure out which is meant. And I think that there's a bit of slippage that is in some ways intentional in the way that that term is used in the military archives. Um, And I just, I remember this one moment interviewing um, a veteran and I will not go any further than that in terms of identifying this specific one, because I don't think this made it into the book um, who, you know, we were talking about 
their experiences in Vietnam. And he was deploying ma femme, ma femme, right? Like my woman or wife, right? <laughs> like ma femme, yeah. ma femme, ma femme. <laughs> and I was like, you know, was this your spouse? Like I used a poos. And then, you know, he said, oh, well, she wasn't my vraie femme. She wasn't my true mm-hmm. wife. <laughs> and I was just like, so there's a particular kind of yeah. support that people are using, which I think is both trying to convince people in the present of the kind of real emotional investment and the real intentions of the past in terms of they were kind of engaged in conjugal strategies that, you know, if they had been able to outside of the context of war, outside of the rapid decolonization in Vietnam, outside of the context of being employees for a really kind of nasty colonial regime, um, that they would have tried to kind of go through the steps that would have made that conjugal relationship a legitimate marriage, right? I think that's what that indicates, right? An intentionality in the past that was unrealized. Um, But also one of the reasons why I use conjugal partner, um, because it seemed like it was the best term to take us through the entire book. (laughs) Um, Because in the 19th century, you see particular kinds of conjugal arrangements that may or may not have been consensual, may or may not have been kind of achieved through violence um, that were absolutely occurring within the power dynamics of militarized conquest. So it's very difficult to ascertain as to whether or not um, these conjugal arrangements occur in a way that would have made this conjugal relationship, a legitimate marriage, according to the traditions of the soldier involved, according to the traditions of the woman involved, according to French civil kind of law, um, according to Sharia, if members of the conjugal union were Muslim. Um, So it's really difficult to kind of understand whether or not all of the people involved and the people who were kind of part and parcel of the institutions kind of around this couple would have seen this as a kind of legitimate marriage. Um, And I, you know, I was careful in this because I was worried, right? Like, I don't want to say, because I think the French military does this kind of terrible thing where they, in the 19th century, assume that, you know, most of the relationships that Tiago Senegali are engaging in kind of in the battlefield or off the battlefield and near uh, military posts are illegitimate. And I, and I think that that's wrong, right? Like I think that um, there are various there, it's, it's just difficult to encapsulate kind of all of the various factors, kind of interests, will possibilities, constraints um, within these different settings And so conjugal partner seemed to kind of help me kind of track us through when you actually do see, you know, after the First World War, the military, um, the the French military becomes invested in defining what marriage means and discriminating against particular configurations so that they do or do not have to pay pensions or allocations to families. Right. So you do see a kind of change in how the French begin to. And then and that's also when you begin to see 
a kind of separation between how members of these households see legitimate marriage and how the French military sees legitimate marriage. Right. Um, but so it, yeah. Conjugal partner kind of carries it, carries the whole book through. And I also think, like you said, it, it does something in terms of, um, writing this counter narrative against the French military and how they viewed marriage. It gives dignity to, you know, the women who are involved with these Thierry Senegali, um, in terms of not just casting them as, oh, any relation was just illegitimate. But um, you're like, well, maybe not underneath the laws. <laughs> sure. But, you know, um, and it's not just one law, but it's like you were mentioning, it's complex. So um, it it does something in, um, it unsurfaces these women you know, and it brings them to the forefront. And it's like, well, you know, it's not just illegitimate. And there's actually a lot of labor behind what they did. Um, that needs to still be talked about. So that's just, um, yeah, that's, and that's why this book is just so important. And it's, <laughs> and you, it's, you're really spanning, not just the front, but you're going from Vietnam to um, Madagascar. And, uh, you know, you have this Every time I think of the term Malgash, I never thought of, I never think of it as like, oh, it's only from people from Madagascar. <laughs> I mm-hmm. always thought it was like a mix, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just interesting. Like this really does bring together about how the empire is really, is just completely interconnected mm-hmm. um, in just so many different ways. But um, so speaking to, when you were looking through the archives mm-hmm. um, and, you know, having to, <laughs> you know, asking, asking another scholar, like, what was your experience in the archives? It's like, oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, you know, having to, you know, sift through this entanglement between whether femme is wife or a woman and, you know, having to stick with, well, we're going to go with conjugal partner. What, other, you know, maybe challenges did you have when it came to this project? And um, what were your methods and sources as well? We'll say they were mixed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, in my graduate training, um, I certainly read around um, ideas of, you know, how to access particular things in the archive that may, you know, have been marginalized um, or things that were kind of absent or very rarely kind of appeared in the archive, but then also, um, you know, how to conduct interviews and how to think about oral testimony and issues of memory and these kinds of things. And, you know, I think that um, I had some ideas when I went to start my dissertation research and you know, had to adapt to things on the ground. I will say that, uh, once again, that um, I've been very fortunate to have been at institutions that supported my research because my research did take me to um, Guinea, Senegal, Morocco, Algeria, and France um, over a number of years. Um to get access to archives. And so I was doing two things, right? Like one was trying to create just a basic narrative of where Tiago Senegali went. So I needed to kind of map that for myself. Um, and then also, you know, then try to figure out how and 
and and where women show up in the archives and also how and where they showed up or were talked about um, when I was interviewing veterans of the Tirailleurs de Negalier. And um, speaking to the archival part, you know, I kind of, you know, followed other people's footnotes and kind of went to various kinds of archives in order to kind of get access to documents. Um, and once I finished my dissertation and moved on to the book and decided I needed to add two 19th century chapters, that is when I had to learn how to read French handwriting from the 19th <laughs> century. And that took some time. Um, but I remember like just, you know, developing a tactic where I would skim documents because women do not show up very often. Like there are a couple of dossiers that exist that will be entitled and have, and have women in the title. And you're just like, oh yes, easy. But then, you know, it was really um, plowing through um, documents and like sometimes I would go through 400 pages of a dossier and not see the word woman once, you know, but if I would kind of like skim and look like women, family, um, you know, other words that are affiliated with domestic households, those kinds of things. Like if I found the word, then I would go back to the beginning of that particular document and start trying to find out what the context was. Um, so there, there was a bit of a kind of looking for the needle in the haystack. Um, and this is largely because of the nature of the archive of, of military archives generally, which, you know, are generally tactical, strategic, um, are interested in communicating numbers. Um, and and women only show up when there are problems, right? Um, and so <clears throat> I would try to kind of locate those in order to kind of understand how women became problems. And from that, try to understand what women were doing in and around barracks or on campaign or what have you. Um, something that I found quite fascinating in the research process in terms of um, the written archive was that um, like French Equatorial Africa, which comprises what is today the Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, um, Chad, and part of Cameroon, um, is that they didn't create a depository for documents until 1910. So they don't have an archive that starts <laughs> until 1910. And so um, that's when I found at the military archives in France that they had a very large library and I was able to locate memoirs of French soldiers, not the officers, but French soldiers who served in these places, um, sometimes commanding Tirailleurs Senegalais. And they would write the most bizarre things and absolutely about kind of sexual escapades um, that they sometimes accompany Tirailleurs Senegalais on, right? Like, it was just kind of like, what <laughs> is this? But, um, and then the whole time you're like, did this really happen, right? Like, are these just kind of glorified war stories? Um, but I, I found that those kind of soldiers' memoirs were actually kind of useful in terms of bringing kind of civilian women in these vast spaces kind of better into focus. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll just say is um, 
I don't know who finds it easy to collect oral histories, but I certainly don't. Um, I, you know, I hesitate a lot about asking people personal questions about their pasts. And I mean, you're aware of Sutra, right? Right. Which is this concept in Senegal, which really kind of um, honors and kind of gives great esteem to discretion. Right. There are absolutely also gossips that yes. celebrate <laughs> communicating other people's just like discreet details. <laughs> But, you know, to be a foreign person coming into people's homes or going to um, the, the equivalent of the BFW, um, the Bureau des Anciens Combattants, the Veterans Bureau um, in various cities, and, you know, trying to talk to people about what my project is about <laughs> and then asking them questions, right, about, you know, personal experiences that also might be kind of encapsulated within trauma, because these were military experiences. Um, I, you know, was pretty hesitant about this and it took a lot of kind of self-convincing to kind of begin that process. But once I did, it kind of snowballed out, right? Like I started in the Veterans Bureau in Dakar and they'd say like, oh, you should speak to so-and-so, you should speak to so-and-so, you should go up to San Louis and see this person, you know, yeah, you should go to Kowlak, all these other kinds of things. You should go to chess. Um, and it kind of snowballed out from there. And, um, you know, people, and I'm, I'm curious about like my own gender, right. In terms of how that may have led people to speak more about um, kind of historical encounters uh, with women while they were serving the French military. Um, but you know, it, it, yeah. And I already mentioned like Sophie Jen was just kind of like grabbed me and said, you must meet these Vietnamese women. So, you know, like it's chance encounters and it's kind of being around for a period of time and people becoming familiar with you, building relationships of trust um, and allowing those kinds of memories to really come to the fore uh, in the story, right? Like I think that initially many people thought that I was there to be yet another person investigating the pension debate, yeah. <laughs> right? And they were like, why are you asking questions about women? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was actually, you know, their responses that led me to have these kinds of questions. And it's, um, I mean, this whole journey you know, I feel like you went through two like major experiences, like a, like the journey of like co going through the archives and collecting oral histories. I mean, that alone is a whole experience that you can definitely write about <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, it's something that when sometimes these questions arise, they're like, well, we want to know a little bit more. And it's like, you know, you have to consider like sutura and yes, gossip happens at the same time. <laughs> and I, I think I could even tell earlier when we were talking about Vuti Chat and you're like, well, she kind of narrated it in an ambiguous way. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, but you're not gonna know everything. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, where privacy and the archives for these women come in. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, and then you have to go through this process of building trust. Um, 
and um, it's just I think that's just such a that's such a process and I I, I commend you for doing it because I don't think it's an easy one especially if you have to um, ha- go through these oral histories and you're asking people questions that will definitely it's in you know it's encapsulated in trauma mm-hmm. um, probably things they don't want to remember or mm-hmm. it's um, it's not really helpful <laughs> for them sure. it, it just brings up more pain and sure. suffering so it's um but when it came to these oral histories and having to do interviews with the veterans how did you deal with either possible memory loss or um the the trauma that was around this you know it's not easy to talk about as you know we're saying but how did um were the, were the conversations really guided towards, you know, their focus was on pension. And then sometimes you were like able to infer about women from like, sure. you're like, wait, wait, can we like go back to like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so how, how did these go with the oral histories? Um, so that's a great question. So first I should say something that's very important is um, the people who I interviewed identified as veterans, right? Like there are many people who served in the Tiago Senegal and when they came home from war, hung it up and kind of kind of tried to marginalize themselves from that identity, right? The people that I interviewed who were primarily in their 70s and 80s because they had served in Vietnam and had served in Algeria um, were people who in retirement were interested in the kind of camaraderie and kind of social experience of being a veteran. So they would hang out at the veterans bureaus in Dakar, Saint-Louis, Chess, Ziggenshore. And, um, you know, I think that they, in many ways, because of making those choices, were kind of more apt to speak about those experiences because they were experiences that they shared with each other often. Right. And they saw like being a veteran as a primary portion of their identity um, in the 21st century. Um, so that did kind of, I think, make people a bit more apt and interested in speaking to me. Um, and in terms of memory loss, like almost all of the interviews that I conducted uh, were in groups. <laughs> and so it becomes very interesting, right? Because, you know, people would chime in or kind of like echo each other or correct each other or tease each other. Um, while I, while I was asking questions, um, and this was mostly among men, I could speak very separately to, um, Vietnamese women that I interviewed or their adult children who were in their fifties and sixties by the time I was conducting the interviews, um, who had different (laughs) experiences to relay. But, um, something that, that struck me actually quite a lot, uh, was how there were like different kinds of stories that were common among veterans that hung out in different groups. So the kinds of stories that were told in Dakar were different from the ones that were told in Ziegenshore and were actually very different than the ones that were told by veterans in Conakry, right? So you could see how kind of collective memory had kind of shaped and made kind of clean and collectively acceptable to the people who participated in these different groups, right? And um, I found that to be quite fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, that's a, uh, wow. I mean, it's, 
I guess how like oral histories and the environment like shape, <laughs> you know, one another. But that's definitely um, yeah. And I think it's curious and well, you know, I think it's for the people. Please pick up the book, <laughs> so, you know, understand, like so we can you can find out more about like the Vietnamese mm-hmm. stories as well. Mm-hmm. But um. You know, I think also while you were speaking and you were talking about how you were interviewing people who identified as veterans, it uh, made me think of uh, David Jope's book. Um, I believe it's called At Night, All Blood is Black. In its English translation, yes. Yep, so that's definitely... I haven't had the chance to read it yet. It is um, fascinating. Um, now I'm curious. I think after reading this book, I think I'll be like, "Where are the women in this book?" <laughs> so I'll be curious to. Um, and just to let you know, conjugal assault or where the uh, women are in that book. Yeah. So I, um, and I unfortunately, I, and because mm-hmm. I remember reading, it did come out in a rough time. I don't. I wasn't, you know, in the space to read that book because it seemed mm-hmm. very heavy. It's a very heavy book, and I was like, I think I'm just gonna put this on the book list <laughs> when the sun is out. So um. (laughs) that's a great idea. And I will just say really quickly that that book, uh, in addition to being something of a kind of surreal individual um, journey through World War One, he also bring the author also brings in tropes from the Sunjata epic, which are also quite fascinating. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Well, the sun is out. So I think there you have it. Um, So I also wanted to ask you, you know, you touched a little bit on this already, but what does your book do so far that other books um, don't really touch on when it comes to West African soldiers and, you know, building and defending the empire? Um, Thanks for that question. I think, you know, I am certainly someone who benefited from the kind of open door that Gregory Mann's book, Native Sons, kind of op- like that door that kind of, he cracked it open, right? And then I was like, whoa, <laughs> um, uh, to become very interested in kind of seeing the terroir Senegalais beyond the world wars, because I think most of the historiography on the terroir Senegalais focuses on World War I and World War II. Um, or on the pension debates, or link the wars to the pension debates um, of the late 90s and into the 2000s. And what my work does that I think is very important is that it expands the chronological scope to take it from the 1880s to the end of empire, um, but then also the geographical scope, right? And, you know, in my research, I found that there really are gaps in the historical literature on former um, French Equatorial Africa, right? And Madagascar. Um, I think, you know, Senegal occupies a very large space (laughs) in terms of like the production of historical knowledge. And that, you know, that's largely due to like the University of Sheikha and like, you know, quality historians have been there since yeah. the 1940s, right? You had totally, right? Um, but you don't see the same kinds of things. And I found writing those portions of the book actually to be kind of hard because there wasn't a robust historical literature on these spaces. Um, so that's a call to anyone who's interested, like... <laughs> and doing work in former, you know, French Equatorial Africa uh, is not easy, 
at the moment. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a later question. Um, but, you know, something else that you know, my book does um, is it really takes advantage of since the late 1990s, uh, a variety of historians have really focused on marriage as an institution and something to study in, during the colonial period on the African continent. Right. Like you have Emily Burrell's work, you have Nagode's work, you have, um, I'll just say, a variety of pieces that kind of came out related to the entire continent. And that's, that's also reflective of more women coming into African studies and teaching in university settings. Um, but it was really interesting for me to be able to kind of be at this moment where I could kind of intersect those interests in institutions of marriage and um, the Terrarius Senegalais and being able to kind of center women in that narrative, right? Um, and something I also kind of have been thinking about a lot um, is that it's really difficult for me now to disam, uh, disam like for some reason I can't say this word in English, disambiguate militarization from colonialism, right? Like colonialism was sustained through militarization and the use of soldiers that were recruited locally or brought in from other places. Um, and so if we see that women are actually quite central to militarization, we also see that they are quite central to colonization as well. And not necessarily in working you know, for the forces of colonization or against them, but within the kind of broad and complex stories of the past that are related to colonization and militarization. Um, you know, if the book could have been 600 pages long, it would have been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it could not be. <laughs> for, for now, you know, I think we can combine the books together. <laughs> yeah. But it definitely, yeah. you know, it's um, it's something that, like, I mean, I, I've actually never thought of that, but it is true. Militarization and colonization, they do go hand in hand. Um, it's not like these states were, like, left and, you know, <laughs> there was they needed to sustain force um, as a way of, like, authority. So mm -hmm. the only way to do that really was mil and, uh, military. And we see that today yes, in Mali. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. so, um, um, but if you want to move into that a little bit, I'm happy to kind of yeah, take I mean, your hand please, and go. Please do, because okay. I, it's um, like your book just came out of perfect timing. I was just like, well, this is um, and it's. And, you know, I mean, it's not just Mali. I think we've seen over the years. It's mm -hmm. um, as soon as there's, um, you know, conflict in the sub-Saharan area, the French troops are the first one in, right? So um, can you can you tell us, well, you know, what are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that I was rather uneducated about kind of post-colonial militarization. Um, you know, my epilogue is really interested in kind of tracing some of the echoes of especially um, one particular Ghanaian soldier who becomes Senegalese, um, but then also some other instances of granting of citizenship to veterans in France and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I reviewed a book, um, I guess a year ago now it had that review hasn't come out. I don't know if it will, right. It might just be, you know, 
something that doesn't end up happening as a result of the the pandemic. But I reviewed um, Nathan Powell's book, which looks at kind of France's ongoing participation and militarization of Chad after 1960. And I remember looking at it and, and like reading it and I was just like, why don't I know more about this? And I've actually been um, working very slowly on an article where I'm thinking about kind of comparing and contrasting the use of tirailleurs senegalais for empire in Africa in the 19th century and kind of looking at some of the, or looking anew at some of the things that are in the book, but then comparing them to a particular instance in Niger in 2021, when Chadian soldiers who were part of, um, I don't even know how to say the acronym out loud, but the UN mission kind of broadly in Mali, but then how that UN mission in Mali then was kind of funding various projects across the G5 Sahel force, which, you know, extends across Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, and Chad. But in 2021, um, oh, and this is, you know, I think this were soldiers that were members of this UN mission, but they were also potentially members of Operation Barkhane, which is a French mission in the Sahel. Um, so these were Chadian soldiers stationed in Terra Niger who engaged in rather egregious acts of sexual assault. Um, and I really became kind of curious about accountability um, in these instances where kind of like these are soldiers who are from, you know, a country that is independent, that has in many regards been able to maintain its kind of territorial integrity due to French funding of that military and of dictators in Chad since 1960, right? Um, who these soldiers from that place who were certainly from like the presidential guard of Idris Deby, right? Um, who are then stationed in other parts of the Sahel who are doing this peacekeeping work, which is also infrastructure building and also kind of counterinsurgent anti-terrorist militarization. They are in like interacting with civilians and engaging in acts of sexual violence. And I want to kind of think about how we can kind of, it's not a straight linear line, but how we can kind of talk about the echoes of these processes, because, you know, France has had a heavy military hand on the African continent since independence. We could say since, you know, the 1840s, (laughs) um, but, you know, since independence and a lot of that was kind of orchestrated through France Afrique um, which kind of disintegrated in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since, and this is, you know, according to a, an article that I just uh, read not too long ago that was co-authored by um, Tony Schaefer and a couple of other people, you know, France has moved since Rwanda from a kind of unilateral kind of funding of military projects on the African continent to a multilateral where they share risk and investment with UN bodies, um, the African Union, ECOWAS in some regards, with various country heads, whether it's Mali, Burkina, what have you. Um, 
But they do continue to ensure that they have a kind of imperial military footprint on the African continent, sending their own troops, but then also training local troops, which continues to solidify diplomatic relations that can be quite strategic, especially if there are resources in these places that France wants access to. Um, It's also about imperial military prestige in many regards. And so I think that, you know, in the case of Mali, I think there are a whole bunch of forces at work. Um, You know, if we go back to 2012, when you have, um, you know, Azawad or various kind of like Tuareg movements that are once again, like, you are not serving us, we want independence (laughs) to Bamako, (laughs) right? You, um, you know, have, uh, you know, Azawad uh, kind of attempt something akin to a kind of secessionist movement, but their secessionist movement is also supported by um, Ansar al-Din and other kind of groups in the Sahara um, that have different kinds of intentions about kind of introducing kind of various concepts of Islamic orthodoxy to portions of of Northern uh, Mali, then you see, you know, a coup d'etat that happens in Mali. Um, So 2013 was a big year that then leads to the UN and France under Operation Serval to get involved. But then they stay, right? They stay and they expand into this kind of G5 Sahel force and have been around since 2013. And their presence is often seen as illegitimate. I mean, there are many different soldiers from a variety of places that are serving in the UN forces, certainly like Senegalese soldiers are serving in them. Um, You know, various African countries are sending forces. And, you know, some of these African countries are using these opportunities to get funding from these international organizations to fund regime maintenance um, in their own countries, but then also... um, providing opportunities to get skilled soldiers out of their countries to not be threatened by coup d'etats from the military mm-hmm. barracks, right? There are all these like intricate components of mm-hmm. kind of international relations. And so then where what happens when these soldiers are engaging in egregious acts of violence against women, against civilians, right? French soldiers are doing this. Other soldiers are doing this. Chadian soldiers tend are like... They're claiming that they're going to reduce their numbers, but historically make up a very large portion of the troops that are serving across the Sahel. Mm -hmm. Um, They're seen as um, very strategic in their use because they have experience in the Sahel already. Um, The Chadian soldiers are also the ones that are most often targeted by civilians Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, because of their large presence. And so, yes, I I think that there are echoes that we can see Mm -hmm. um, and we can ask these kinds of questions about kind of neo-colonial military presence. um, And, uh, you know, when we see marches of 2000 people in the streets that are telling France to get out, right? It is with great legitimacy because while France may have been invited in by, certain kinds of regimes, like those regimes are often now gone. I mean, there's been a series of coup d'etats across these, these countries or attempted coup d'etats across these countries. Um, so uh, 
this kind of complexity does continue. I mean, I think you, you really summed it up. I mean, you really, <laughs> that, and that's where your book just comes into play. You're like, well, you know, this is still echoing and then still not having, you know, not being colonized. That's so, you know, it's like, well, it's not over yet. Not if they still, like you said, have an imperial footprint on the continent. And if they're funding, you know, these military, and then it's this continuous cycle um, that, you know, we only get a headliner in TV Saint-Command or France 24, but there's just so much more behind it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So when you were writing this book, mm-hmm. I'm going to assume you were imagining, <laughs> you know, your perfect reader. Um, how, how did you vision, you know, your readers and what did you want them to walk away with from your book or what did you not want them to walk away from your book? But, um, you know, did you have something in mind? I had many things in mind, I guess. Um, you know, something that has been a struggle has been that, you know, the book came out in the pandemic. Um, you know, I had envisioned that I would show up in Dakar with like a whole bunch of copies, right? <laughs> that were in English, but I'd be able to kind of give back to yeah. the various families that spoke to me, to have a couple of like talking engagements at, you know, the military museum downtown, at work, um, at the university, right? Like I imagined like this book being uh, like a way to kind of engage with a public that is very interested in this history of the Tiago Senegalais and to expand their knowledge of it, right? Um, that is what I was looking forward to. And the pandemic has kind of cut that short because I was also hoping that by do, by engaging in these kinds of um, public debates and um, you know public readings, and I would read in French or I would translate into French in these various places, that it would expedite translating the book into French. And that has kind of stalled out um, for a variety of reasons that seem beyond my comprehension and beyond my control. Um, and so I had hoped to kind of engage in the public debates because as, as you know, like in Senegal, um, there is a robust public right. sphere of discourse, right? That's, that's how you make your mark. Right. And so I was really kind of looking forward to engaging with other historians, engaging with, you know, students, engaging with the public, engaging with veterans, engaging with their families, um, you know, the Afro-Vietnamese community, like when I was, you know, at Tet and talking about like, the book is coming, the book is coming. And they're just like, this is great. We should have you come talk at our civic association meeting. And I was like, yes. Um, you know, and I was, I was really looking forward to that. Um, and so, you know, it is a book that is a bit esoteric in some ways, right? Um, but I think for people who lived that history, it is not. Um, so for American audiences, it, it's <laughs> outside of kind of Africanists or people who study um, the French colonial world, it, it is a bit esoteric. Um, but so I was looking forward to kind of that uh, kind of broader public and get, getting it translated and, um, you know, seeing where it went from there. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Perhaps, That's like, funny. yeah, I, I'm hoping that by the end of 2022, we'll get there. I, I definitely have hope, you know. Um, 
Senegalese people are always ready for a good debate. So you know, it's never going to And very long questions. A lot. You know, just um, it's, it's, they're long-winded and, you know. And informed, um, right? Mm-hmm. Like informed. Like people just are able to kind of draw connections in ways that are just so fascinating and all-encompassing. And that's what we need. It's, it's, I think it's amazing when you're able to put out a work and then actually have the people, you know, engage with your work. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just you speaking, but they're like, we have voices too. And you're, it's a great, you're like, I want your voices to, to engage with me yeah. on this. And it yeah. just leads to things being more expanded upon. And even if it's, you know, for like for an American audience, I think this book provides context mm-hmm. to the things that we see. Like we usually get mm-hmm. headliners um, and it's like, well, you know, can we, you know, get a little bit more? I always appreciated a professor I had at George Mason and he would pull up a headliner and it would just say like tribal conflict <laughs> between clans um, in Somalia. And he's like, let's, let's look into this a little let's further. Let's take this apart. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, like we would look at, you'd read the article and then we're like, actually, this is nothing at all. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. like this doesn't really tell us anything, mm-hmm. but um, like it actually leaves us with more questions if you take a deeper look. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's what your book does. Um, it's like, well, you know, it's a little bit more than just tribal warfare or just French troops on the continent. Mm-hmm. Or um, it's like, well, let's look at how, these Afro-Vietnamese, you know, how did they land here? Mm-hmm. And what were their journeys? And, mm-hmm. you know, what were the, the the trauma that was behind them and the labor that we just never talk about? We always mm-hmm. think about colonization and it's masculine. Um, you're like, well, no, let's think about the footnotes <laughs> in these <laughs> military histories. So I think that's completely, um, I think mm-hmm. this this is just wonderful. So just to kind of, you know, wrap this up, um, what have you walked away from this book? And, you know, what can we expect? Um, You know, is there anything else that you're working on? Are you going to build up on this? Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'll first start by saying that, like, (laughs) something I learned from this book is that we are lifelong learners, And I think that even as we become specialists in particular topics, we begin to learn how ignorant we are um, (laughs) in many things. Um, And so, you know, something that I did not emphasize in my graduate education was studying women, gender and sexuality. Right. That was something that I came to in the process of this book. And it has kind of triggered a spark in me to kind of continue my education in that, right? Like I've started regularly teaching women, gender, and sexuality in African history so I can edify myself (laughs) while teaching various topics with students. Um, But in particular, like becoming much more aware of the kinds of debates around women, feminism, gender, sexuality, inheritance, matrilineality, matrilineality, um, patriarchy, what have you, on the African continent itself. And I think that, um, you know, the works of like Oye Ronke, Oye Wumi, right, The Invention of Women, which published in the 1990s, more recent work by Nkiru Nzegwu, um, both of these women are, Niger- are Nigerian, but then also looking at like, um, is it Naminata? 
Naminata Jabate's uh, Naked Agency that just came out, right? And then also thinking about some other things that like um, Ramasala Jang has put out um, about kind of feminism and 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 um, I don't think it's Senegal. I think it's much more broad than that. Um, but like really pay attention to how scholars from the African continent are framing these these questions and discussions because I think that some of that literature has been kind of dominated by kind of Western discourses and where those debates are moving in the North American context. Um, because I think that, you know, by paying attention to these scholars who are just beginning to publish in English, uh, not obviously Oyamakawi Oyurumi and Inkiru Nzegu, but um, women from regions where French is one of many languages spoken, um, but spoken more often than English. Like we're beginning to see publications in English that, well, some of us can read in French, but that are continuing to um, influence and uh, affect kind of North American scholarship, um, particularly related to the African continent, which I'm really kind of happy about. So I am pursuing that in a, in a particular regard and, um, the next project is, well, I, there is the article that I'm working on, but then the next project, um, which, you know, has a couple of article length pieces that are out for review, um, comes directly from, uh, you know, a very generous person, right? I've, I've mentioned her already, but like Sophie Jen, like she really inspired me to be very curious about Gory Island. And so, um, the next project, as I see it, is about the gendered production of memory and history on the island. And it's going to be a kind of investigation of the production of historical knowledge in the written sources. Um, and certainly I will address like seniors um, in that context, but then also speak to the mobilization of, or the marginalization, the marginalization of Gorean women, because like there's seniors and then what happens? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there are very strong civic associations on the island. You know, the island was a site of French citizenship, um, which also meant that the island was a site of French patriarchy that comes in after the Napoleonic era. Um, but I think that, you know, these various kind of forces in terms of the production of historical knowledge then also inform how the island uh, communicates the past as a UNESCO World Heritage Site and how contestations around that past are articulated and some of the power dynamics in the contemporary moment. Um, and so it's gonna be something of a grand scale chronology from the 17th century to the present, but the island is only 300 by 900 meters. So I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think I can do it, right? Like the book, like Militarizing Marriage is such a huge geographical expanse that I was like, Goray will be great. <laughs> like just, but there's so much history in there this is, like, small space. There you know? is. <laughs> and it is also, uh, you know, a, a Senegalese history that is hotly debated <laughs> and, you know, has popped up in various kinds of contemporary um, kind of anti-colonial or anti-neocolonial movements like France Degage, um, and some of these other debates, like it, it, Gore kind of like works its way into some of these other debates about, you know, the Seifa, 
still being tethered to French currency and printed in France and these kinds of mixed legacies of a kind of deeper colonial past. Um, so still colonialism, but I'm really going to kind of try to move away from militarization. We'll see. Yeah, see I if mean, I'm able. Larry Island, touching on that will get you all the debates in Senegal. <laughs> I, <know>. I, mean, <laughs> I know. But, you know, we're definitely excited and hopefully when that comes out, we can then you know invite you back on. Oh, thanks. Um, and then a decade. Be a decade. <laughs> a decade. <laughs> you know, by then it'll hopefully we're like fully out of the pandemic, mm -hmm. and you'll have a PhD, and you'll have a great job. That, hopefully, right? Yeah. And then I'll be talking to you about how I know less after. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, but you know, I think that's the African. It's just so vast. Mm -hmm. It's like so many, like each, um, just square meter is just so full of detail. It's it like, really and it's is. not just one thing; it's so many things. Mm -hmm. It really is. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, but I'm, I'm just glad to see how you're engaging with the people there, and like you're including them along in the research. You're like, you know, you're. It's like this co-construction of knowledge with the people, mm -hmm. and it's just, um. I don't know. It's it's fascinating, mm -hmm. and I'm I just can't wait to read it. So mm -hmm. thanks. <laughs> I can't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank Oh,